0: Of corporate and investment banking, lead the conversation on future investment possibilities and sustainable growth opportunities in healthcare. Because we were facing a public health emergency here, the different regulators followed these rolling submissions. So you submitted data as it became available. That data got priority evaluation and review. And that's how we were able to register these products as quickly as we did. But all the requirements that are usually needed to be met was followed in this instance as well. Matching foresight with sustainable possibilities to unlock your business's potential. APSA Insights, hosted by Bruce Whitfield. Brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking.
1: Welcome to APSA Insights. I'm Bruce Whitfield and joining us today is Stavros Nikolaou. Now, Stavros, amongst these many titles, has been at the forefront of businesses' battle against COVID-19 and trying to encourage as many people to get vaccinated as possible. His day job is with Aspen Pharmacare, where he is a senior executive responsible for strategic trade development. Now, Ross, we look at vaccine hesitancy, we look at vaccine complacency, and we look at some terrifyingly low levels of vaccine application in South Africa. Have you managed to work out what is at the core of the problem? Bruce, firstly,
0: I think it's probably best that I preface my response with the following. There are three elements that you've got to get right to, to successfully vaccinate a population. Firstly, you've got to have supply of product. And I'm really pleased to tell you that the product is rolling off the Aspen production lines. So we no longer have a supply problem in the country. In fact, we've got an oversupply. The second aspect is, do you have sufficient capacity at a healthcare systems level to administer the vaccine? And and again, the private and the public sectors have invested significantly in building this capacity and we have an overcapacity situation. Then the last and final element is, do you have demand or uptake from the population and or the public to take these vaccines? And this is where we're struggling as a country at the moment, which is what you've just pointed out. Now, there are four categories of people that have not been vaccinated thus far. And just to remind everyone of what the latest numbers look like, we've administered, by my estimate, around 19 million doses of vaccine, and we are required to vaccinate 28 million of our population in South Africa by the end of December. Now, why 28 million? That represents 70% of the adult population, which is where we are going to get to sometime of what we call epidemiological containment. So we're no longer chasing what we previously referred to as herd immunity. We are now targeting what we are calling a containment strategy. A containment strategy means that you do break the chain of transmission to an extent And that you prevent these roller coaster lockdowns that we've been experiencing. And that gives you the best bet as a country to getting the balance between saving lives in the one hand and livelihoods in the other. So that's what the target is 28 million. We've administered roughly uh, 19 million doses that doesn't mean we've got 19 million people vaccinated. That
1: is the point, isn't it? And that's what's been quite confusing for a lot of people because your J&J dose is a single dose application. Other doses require two and possibly will require booster shots at some point in the future.
0: That's quite right, Bruce. So if I take how many J&J single dose vaccines have been administered and how many Pfizer single doses have been administered, we would have by the end of the numbers, the 18 million, by the end of that, we would have only vaccinated 14 million people. 14 to 15 million, which is significantly short of vaccinating
1: in full 28 million people. We've got the capacity to fairly easily within the next three months, double the number of people who are vaccinated. We've got the doses, we've got the sites, we've got the staff and the capability of delivering very easily 14 million doses, I would think, in the next three months. Why is that three month deadline so absolutely critical for South Africa, particularly at this stage?
0: Bruce, ideally, we would like to vaccinate 28 million before the next wave comes along. Now, no one can predict when the next wave comes along. And if they they do, they're not being truthful. What we do know is we will have a fourth wave. Now, we can either have a fourth wave that is muted or a fourth wave that is exacerbated, right? The difference between the two is going to depend on how many people we vaccinate against the target of 28 million. If we get close to the 28 million or we make significant inroads at very least, then we are likely to have a muted fourth wave, which means we don't go back into these hard lockdowns. And we start experiencing an element of normality, if not full normality. So that is the criticality of the 28 million many experts are predicting you'll get a fourth wave by you know, mid-December or so. As I said, no one has a crystal ball and can predict that. But what we do know for sure is we've got to make significant inroads into the 28 million before we get to a fourth wave. And then we start dealing with a more manageable situation, including a more manageable
1: economy and economic response. The reason here for this timeline that you're setting, this three-month deadline, is it because South Africa is particularly more vulnerable? Um, Certainly the third wave proved to be a lot more deadly than many experts had forecast before it hit. Are we, for some reason, more vulnerable than perhaps many other places on Earth?
0: Bruce, indeed we are. And part of our vulnerability relates to our own epidemiological makeup as a country. Now, what do I mean by that exactly? I think it's well known and well recorded that South Africa has the highest HIV population per capita and in numbers, any country in the world. So to put that in perspective, we represent about 0.5% of the world's population, but yet we harbor 18%, 1.8% of the world's HIV infection rate. So there's a significant disproportionality there. Put in numbers, they're close. On 9 million HIV infected people in South Africa. And being HIV infected naturally means that we have a higher percentage of immunocompromised population segments than just about any other country globally right and of course immunocompromised patients these are patients that don't have the conventional immunological defense system that healthy individuals would have Um, I'm not saying it's only HIV people that are immunocompromised there are many other categories like patients that have cancer and certain other conditions But we've got this anomaly in South Africa of a high HIV-infected population, and that makes us as a country more vulnerable to mutations, as we call it, or the virus changing. And the virus changes in form and shape, and usually... You you know, you can either down or up mutate. Uh, Now, the third wave that we experienced in South Africa was an upward mutation of a virus, which meant that you had the manifestations of the so-called Delta variant. That Delta variant was twice as contagious, or at least twice as contagious, as the beta variant that we experienced in the second wave. So where am I going to with all of this, Bruce? We have a more vulnerable population from a mutation perspective in our country. And the only way to reduce the mutations and reduce the variants, because we know that these variants, they, they're called after symbols in the Greek alphabet. So we know we're down to a me, After me, you get Ni, and then eventually go down to Omega, right? We don't want to get there. We want to make sure that the chain of transmission is broken. And the best way to do that is through vaccinations. And if we break the chain of transmission, You have a lower likelihood of these contagious parents manifesting and causing havoc as we saw in the third wave.
1: It's ironic, I suppose, that we understand the lessons of South Africa's failure to deal with HIV very, very clearly. And we're living with the consequences of that policy failing to this very day. And it makes us more vulnerable as a result to COVID-19. Yet South Africa's population is massively vaccination hesitant, resistant, agnostic, uh, ambiguous, whatever explanation you want to use. Some people who i might have thought under some circumstances were pretty bright, pretty intelligent, pretty capable people. Even they are confused or deliberately so, either deliberately or simply out of sheer ignorance, confused about the efficacy and the usefulness of vaccines. How do we break the psychological barrier of vaccines, Stavros? Because that surely is what we've got to achieve, you know, not in the next three months, but in the next month to get people through in the next three months. Bruce,
0: you are 100% correct in that um, there are actually four categories of people that have not been vaccinated. By far the most predominant, we think, in our country is the so-called vaccine apathetic group. So these are people that are they're kind of sitting on the fence and saying, well, if a vaccine comes along, I'll take it. So it's almost like you've got to take the vaccine to the people. So they're not necessarily vaccine hesitant. They're just apathetic to the situation. You've got a second group, which is your vaccine hesitant. These are people that have received information and are also sitting on the fence, but for a different reason. Their reason is that they either don't believe they're required to take a vaccine or they think they can get by without taking a vaccine. Some believe that it's unsafe to take a vaccine. And then you've got two other categories. You've got your anti-vaxxers who are very difficult to convince and they might be anti-vaxxers for religious reasons or conspiracy theories or the likes thereof. And then you've got a very small group that are people where the vaccine is on medical grounds contraindicated. And and those are the only group that should really uh, not be taking a vaccine, to be honest. They might have a hypersensitivity to one of the constituents of the vaccine. The latter group are very small. They're not going to make a difference, but the other three groups are the ones that we need to address. Now, the biggest group, as I was saying earlier, is those that are vaccine apathetic. Now, how do we deal with the vaccine apathetic group? We've got to continue providing information into the public domain. We've got to have a more targeted approach than we've had at present. This means going through community approaches, getting key opinions and leaders, people that those individuals relate to, whether it's a a religious leader, a sporting hero, a corporate business leader that they relate to and the likes thereof. The vaccine-hesitant group, I suppose, can be persuaded eventually with sufficient information. And I'm going to handle one or two of the key misrepresentations, as we call them out there. So the first one is that these vaccines are unsafe. Okay, now vaccines have been in existence for over two centuries. In fact, the first vaccine was administered in 1791. It's how far back it goes. So billions of doses of vaccines have been administered over many decades and centuries. And they are, in fact, amongst the safest pharmaceuticals that one can use. In the COVID landscape, we've administered over 6 billion doses globally of COVID vaccines. And the mortality rates or the severe side effect profile of these is almost negligible. It's non-existent virtually. And then the third thing around these vaccines from a safety perspective is they have endured the same safety protocols, both in the testing and in the registration of these vaccines that any other previous vaccine prior to COVID would have had to go through and or any other pharmaceutical that has been registered over many decades and centuries, as I said earlier. So the testing protocols that the regulators use, that the scientists use to determine the safety of these vaccines is the same as we've endured with any other vaccine or pharmaceutical. So there should be no doubt out there that these are not safe and not efficacious for that matter, because I think we're starting to see the data on the efficacy as well. Let me just handle one other sort of misrepresentation as we're calling it. We're calling this clinical misrepresentations, right? One other misrepresentation is that there were shortcuts taken in registering these products. Now, every regulator around the world has a particular protocol that they follow in terms of how they register a product or don't register it. Now, they all register products based on quality, safety, and efficacy. So whether it's the US FDA, which is arguably the most stringent regulator in the world, or any of the European medicine agencies, the EMA, MHRA in the UK, or any others, or our very own SAPRA here in South Africa, all follow stringent regulatory guidelines and processes. There have been no shortcuts taken in this instance with the the COVID vaccine. What has happened is because we were in the midst of a crisis, unprecedented in our lifetimes, there were parallel processes that were run. In other words, rolling submissions of data. Usually when you register a product, you've got to submit all the data at the end and that takes time. Because we were facing a public health emergency here, the different regulators, including our very own SAPRA in South Africa, followed these rolling submissions. So you submitted data as it became available, that data got priority evaluation and review, and that's how we were able to register these products as quickly as we did. But all the requirements that are usually needed to be met by any pharmaceutical company registering a vaccine or a medicine was followed in this instance as well. So these are safe and effective products and are being proven to be so with the billions of doses that have been administered thus far. Still to come in this EBSA Insights podcast. Of course, gentle persuasion is the best way to get people to do anything in life. But I think there's a limit to persuasion as well in the interest of public good. EBSA Insights.
1: Savros, you and I can talk to each other until we are blue in the face because we are of a similar mindset toward vaccines and their efficacy and the importance of vaccines. How then do we break through the barriers that exist that you and I might regard as illogical, that people who are to harbor an alternative belief. Think our perspective is wholly illogical. How do we break through? How do we get through to get the level of vaccine required to protect us and to allow us to recover and grow in the future?
0: So, Bruce, when you've presented all the facts and people have looked at it logically, and you've done away with the fake news, because I think a, lo- a lot of the vaccine hesitancy is coming from fake news, right? And, mm. You know, the the sad reality of the world we live in is you can have fifty. Thousand followers on a chat group or on instagram or whatever the case might be and your message might resonate more than a nobel science laureate who's only got 500 people on, on his or her chat group right so very often inaccurate information or misrepresentations as i said earlier are being posted on these groups So we'll carry on putting out the facts. But you're quite right, that's not going to change everyone's opinion. There's There's a human behavioral element here as well. So now, Bruce, let me get slightly controversial. Of course, gentle persuasion is the best way to get people to do anything in life. But I think there's a limit to persuasion as well in the interest of public good. And that's why the conversation that's taking place publicly around a mandatory vaccine, I think we need to start examining that a lot more closely. So, for example, I had a meeting with the French ambassador last week uh, and uh, he was saying to me that when France went mandatory, the vaccination rate doubled. So now we're going to get into a controversial discussion around, well, you know, I've got rights and privileges as an individual, which quite correctly, individuals do. However, the person that works with you in the desk next to you or on the production line across from you or the bank teller that's dealing with the public, that individual who has been vaccinated and done the responsible thing also has rights. And one of the rights they have is for you not to infect them if you're unvaccinated. Now we know for a fact that vaccines reduce the transmission rates. So... I think this discussion is going to get to a point where eventually to turn up for work or to have access to a football stadium or to go to campus and get your lectures live as opposed to online. I think the discussion is heading more and more towards that direction which is justifiable because we're only all safe when each of us individually is safe. And I think that we've had too much focus on individual rights up until now. And I think we need to start taking that to the next level to say, well, no problem if you choose not to be vaccinated. But then, you know, you can't be allowed into the soccer state and you can't get into lectures unless you fall into that fourth category, Bruce, that I spoke about, which is those people who are on legitimate medical grounds cannot be vaccinated, which are really minuscule in the overall scheme of things. So I think there's a strong case here, just in conclusion, to be made around taking the mandatory conversation to the next level. I
1: I, I throw back one thing at you in the mandatory conversation in South Africa, and I say e-tolls. That's ended well, hasn't it? Well, I think, you know, I
0: suppose you can relate e tolls to some degree of safety, right? Because you've got better roads, you're less likely to have access. Yeah, but
1: people don't want to pay for them. And and that that's the point. I mean, I suppose e tolls has come without any negative consequence. You don't pay your e tolls and nobody's been prosecuted for it. And there's been a huge legal pushback against it um, because of the way in which it was rolled out. The problem with making things mandatory in South Africa is anybody, I mean, we'll organize a fight by ourselves inside an empty brown paper bag. I mean, it's, and that's the problem with making things mandatory
0: no look you're right bruce and i think ultimately it's social behavior that's gonna you know a behavior that says look you're an outlier here and maybe I should use the smoking example. It's a bit better than the toll fees, right? We know that when then Minister Lamini Zuma started introducing these smoking laws, right? there was quite a bit of pushback at the time, you'll remember. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that's generally accepted now. I mean, if someone lit up in a restaurant next to you, that person would be ostracized and kicked out the restaurant. So I think we've got to take it to, to that level and push in that direction where you are seen to be an outlier in the workplace. Of course, your employer and there is now legal precedent, discovery got this, we know this. There's a declarator that we're expecting towards the end of the week, this week or early next week. There is legal clarity around the actions that an employer can take. But ultimately, you want to do this because you are identified by not vaccinating as an outlier, and an outlier that's risking the health, as smokers are, for example, the health of an individual who's not smoking. And I think that's where we need to take it to. So if the the smoking example for me, where you societally shunned, is a better example than the tollgate
1: one. Fair enough. But now, how close are you then at Aspen to making vaccines compulsory at Aspen? I, at results time, I had a conversation on the radio with Stephen Sard, who tap danced around this issue. Uh, lovely man, but good tap dancer, um, and wasn't willing to commit. Saying, so like, "Well, you know, I would have the view, but you know, my team." So how much closer are you? I mean, you hold up Discovery as a great example. You're in the healthcare sector. You're manufacturers. Would you be willing right now to put your neck on the line to say, yes, we will make it compulsory at Aspen, except for group number four that you refer to, to be vaccinated? Because surely that's leading by example.
0: So, Bruce, I think Stephen's message was quite well recorded because I think he got it uh, from multiple sources, not not just yourself. And I think that position hasn't changed. So, I mean, ultimately, where Aspen is, we, we're going to try the gentle persuasion aspect, which is you give people all the information they need and uh, you give them every opportunity, whether it be providing mobile facilities, which incidentally, we've done at Aspen. In Kebeja, we've set up a tent and we, we partnered with. Clicks in this instance, clicks came in and started vaccinating uh, staff members. So we're going to go that route and Stephen's been quite clear, I mean ultimately you're probably going to have to do what the rest of society is going to do and I think the rest of society is also going to look at elements of mandatory along the lines of how I discussed it earlier and I think Aspen's position is the same. We're going to try the gentle persuasion route first it works best and then you see where you are in a month or two and then I think you look at what the rest of pharma is doing. I think farmers is having this discussion right now as I speak. In fact, I'm chairing a meeting tomorrow morning with the pharma companies. And, and I think this is a mindset uh, that pharma is developing and ought to be developing because they're the ones that produce the vaccines in the first
1: instance. That's the point. I mean, Anton Rupert, the founder of the the Rupert Empire, of course, was notorious for if somebody walked into his office and was smoking a competitive brand of cigarettes, he'd rip them out of their hands and throw them in the bin and hand over a box of Rothmans or whatever the case was. If you don't believe in your own products, well, then that's a problem. And I think, you know, that may make the clearest statement so far is if you are in pharma, you better be vaccinated. Otherwise, you need to go and find another job. I think there's a lot to be said around believing in your own product uh, and
0: and that's why I think pharma is important in this conversation because Pharma's been producing vaccines, as I said, for, for decades. And I mean, the 1791 was when the first vaccine was administered. So why should pharma be thinking differently about its products now? It, it shouldn't. It's only that this debate has been contaminated through, as I said earlier, a lot of inaccurate um, and misleading statements that have been made from non-medical people largely. And you've had one or two outlier medical people as well. But, um, yeah, you know, and, uh, that also puzzles me a lot. But we know that we have roughly seven to 800,000 healthcare workers in our country, depending on how you define this, of course, Bruce. But we know through the Sesonke study and post care that just about every healthcare worker was vaccinated. And we can see the results. I, I was speaking to the Life Care uh, CEO the other day, a few weeks ago, and he was saying to me, that during the first and second wave they had 43 deaths that's doctors and nurses in the third wave because the healthcare workers were vaccinated zero deaths so that demonstrates what vaccines can do and we know that the overwhelming majority of healthcare workers in our country have been vaccinated and that's the best vote of confidence that you can give to anyone is when healthcare workers start taking it and they see the results.
1: Stavros Nikolaou, thank you very much indeed. Stavros is an executive at Aspen PharmaCare. He's also been at the forefront of leading businesses' battle against COVID-19.
0: Expert advice and data-driven insights that unlock your business's potential. Apsa Insights. Matching foresight with sustainable possibilities, brought to you by Apsa Corporate and Investment Banking. For more, visit apsainsights.co.za.